Well, our subject this week is the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to be directing our attention to chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So let's, let's dig right into the word. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid, and no one lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but up on a lampstand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we pray for your revelation that you will open the word to us. Holy Spirit, shine your light on this word so that we might shine our light for you in this world. We pray it so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered why we call Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 the Sermon on the Mount? Well, uh, what Dr. Lear told us yesterday was it's a direct connection with the prophet Moses, that Jesus is the prophet to come, and this may be true. But either way, it certainly lacks flair and panache, wouldn't you say? It's not very, this doesn't have, just ring a bell for you. It would be like calling this sermon, Dr. Pritt's sermon on the platform. Well, who's going to remember what that's about? What did he preach on? The platform. Well, what was it about? I have no idea. But it was on the platform. <laughs> a catchy name for a sermon or a speech is what evokes the emotion, the passion, and the easy remembrance of what is said. I mean, do you recollect this famous speech titled, Cashing a Canceled Check? Or Normalcy, Never Again? No. Well, what about this one? The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom speech. It's still not ringing a bell for some of you. Each was a title that Martin Luther King Jr. posed for his now memorable speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in August 1963. It's MLK's I Have a Dream. Well, everybody remembers that as if they just ask you, oh, have you heard that speech, I Have a Dream? Oh, yeah, I know what that's about. What's it about? He has a dream, right? <laughs> you at least know what it's going about. One scholar suggests that we should call Jesus' sermon here the discourse on discipleship, but it's a little stale, I think. No doubt this sermon needs a better title so that people would walk away and say, I know exactly what that's about. Because if you ask the average Christian, do you know the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus' famous sermon. What's it about? I, I don't really know. But it's on a mount. And it was a sermon. Maybe it should be called Being Like Jesus or this is a little closer, kingdom living, that's getting closer to it, or the radical way of Christ, or maybe just the way of God. My personal favorite would either be knowing the Father, or this one for sure, introducing the heavenly Father. So what is Jesus trying to say to us? In this passage, Jesus uses three metaphors. We are to be salt, we are to be the city on a hill, and we are to be light. And he uses these metaphors to say we are called to be both effect, an effect and to be noticed. We're called to be an effect, and we're called to be noticed. In the first one, we are called to be an effect. He just uses one metaphor here. Jesus calls us to be salt, not to be salty. 
You know, if you say of someone, wow, you're a bit salty today, you know, we're using it in a slang sense, and it means something like this, exceptionally bitter, angry, or upset, or maybe you could say they're a nihilist, or they're a, an old word would be a comadron. Well, that's a big word. <laughs> you know, they're just, they're just salty, right? But Jesus does not call us to be salty. Jesus calls us to be salt. The Talmud, the rabbis exclaim, the Torah has been compared to salt. The world cannot exist without salt. So too it is impossible for the world to exist without scripture. So they compared it to salt but came to the conclusion Jesus does. You absolutely have to have salt. Plus, salt provides flavor and has an effect on food. You can take any bland thing, put a little salt on it, and it just livens it right up. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's good. They give you the best steak in the world. You bite into it. It needs a little salt. Get a little salt on it. Take a bite. Wow, that's an awesome steak. You should have said, wow, salt is good, right? Because really it's the salt that brings out that flavor. Carson says, Salt has a negative effect of preventing decay. How, how wonderful to think about a substance that actually has a negative effect, and Jesus calls us to be it. This idea that we would prevent decay, and this is the way our lives are supposed to live. We are called to have an effect. Second, we're called to be noticed. And here he uses two metaphors. There's a, a city on a hill, and it is visible from miles away, especially at night. You drive down the road and you can see a city that's elevated from a long way off. But at some point, it all just kind of blends into the train. But at night, when it's lit up, you can't miss it. Impossible to not spot a city that's on a hill because it's lit up and it's, it's there to be seen. We, too, must be noticed and not hidden. We cannot hide and be living in secret. We cannot be closet Christians. We cannot be secret Christians. I don't know if you know this, but at least in John's gospel, there are two secret disciples. Do you know who they are? The first one is Joseph of Arimathea. Who knows what the second one is? Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. In John's words, he says, Joseph came and took the body down and, and he, he's going to put it in a tomb that he owns. So he has a burial plot. And Nicodemus comes along also and brings spices and ointments to put on the body to help with the smell, and then they wrap it. And it was a way of showing uh, deference and preference for the body. And so they come and do this. John says, they, he, uh, Joseph in particular was a disciple, but secretly because he feared the Jews. So he's, he's a hidden disciple. You don't ever hear anything about him after this. Now, he serves a function. He provides a gift to the, to the disciples for sure. But there's no mention of him or Nicodemus once you move into the book of Acts. They're not central. They're not important, even though they would have been wealthy and they would have been prominent people. Nothing more said of them. Some of the, you might lead us to believe that you are secret disciples too. Or even better, you might say, I am a Christian cleverly disguised as a heathen. I want to blend in after all, you know. Or maybe if that word heathen is too strong to you, you could say, I'm cleverly disguised as a person who behaves otherwise. Got a little poetic flair to it there, doesn't it? Because how else could God amuse me if I'm not blended in with everyone around me? But you know, oftentimes the more we blend, the less effective we can even be for Christ. We lose our voice because we're not salt and now we're not light either. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in a time when patriotism was swelling in the country he was from and 
Everybody was getting excited about nationalism. We've got to believe in who we are. We're a special people. But along came some very ugly sides to that as well. The idea of being anti-immigration. And then also, on top of that, we're even against certain ethnicities, especially if we think they're inferior to us. And the church of his day began to align itself with the government because how else could it be effective if it is not also in alignment with what the government is doing? It was very popular at the time as well. And Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call, a community of Jesus who seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Wow. <laughs> Never was such a word spoken so long ago so pertinent today. We want to just blend in and be a part. We want to be part of the popular movement, but the more we do it, the more we are hidden. We're a city on a hill, you see. And second, he says, we are a candle or a lamp that must never be covered up. Light isn't obscure. It's against its nature. By nature, you have to see it. That is how it functions. Light isn't obscure. It is noticed in the Apostle Paul's view. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Then you will be pure and blameless. You'll be children of God without fault among sinful and evil people. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Nobody, and I mean nobody, goes out on a cloudless night, lifts up their hands to the cosmos and says, wow, look at all that black. No, they go out and what do they say? Look at all those stars. No attention is given to the undefined space between the stars, even though the majority of what you see when you look up at night is dark. Nothing. Black. It's the majority, but that's not what you see. Christians are the same way. We just stand as a little point. One light. You're just one light. And I'm going to let my light shine, right? You know the song. So it's clear from Jesus' sermon that those who are committed to kingdom living must have an effect and they must be noticed. These two things, if you miss this, you've missed the whole point of the message. That is, we must be engaged and we must be light to quell darkness. However, there's a problem, a, 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 a gloomy, glaring problem with demonstrating these qualities. In Matthew 6, Jesus goes to considerable lengths to blow up the public display of several important demonstrations of one's faith, namely the giving of alms, prayer, and fasting. Now, Pastor Christie is going to engage this topic for us tomorrow, and we'll build on it way more. So my only point of drawing attention to it is to bring it into contrast with the verse we're looking at right now. He states this, be careful not to do good deeds in front of other people. Don't do those deeds to be seen by others. If you do, the Heavenly Father in heaven will not reward you. So here's the problem. We are to be salt and we are to be light. And at the same time, we are not to give, pray, or fast to be seen. This creates an immediate conflict. How can Jesus tell us to leave our mark and be noticed only to teach us to do things in secret and go unnoticed? Why two mandates? Why? Why does he do this? Clearly, Jesus is the light of the world, and he has been seen. This one solitary life has lit up the world over. He's worshipped by billions as Emmanuel, and his name is also a common exclamation, an expletive, to which his parents have been drawn into it as well. We've even given him a middle name with the initial H. 
And who knows what, why anybody would even do such a thing. But it just shows you that Jesus has been noticed. He's not unnoticed. He has made an effect. He has caused an effect. He's not been ineffectual. Clearly, Jesus has lit up the world. But he does not seek attention or attempt to stand out in any way. So we have to ask this question. But how can one have an effect if they are unseen? How would that be possible? I don't know. I guess I'll just stay quiet until it, I figure it out. You know, this is what the whole world is doing. For most of us, our life and deeds are a witness to our own egocentric and selfish motives. We do almost everything. In fact, we could probably say we do everything for ourselves. We do it to be seen, and when we do it that way, it reveals what we think about God. In Plantinga's view, we do this out of our own desire to shape God into our own image. He states, why else does God emerge as a racist? How did anybody get the impression God is a racist unless it's the God that we project? Why else does God emerge as a racist, a sexist, a chauvinist, politically correct, legalistic, socialistic, capitalistic? If we are intellectuals, God is a cosmic Phi Beta Kappa. If we are laborers, God is a union organizer. His son was a carpenter after all. And if we are entrepreneurs, God is for free enterprise. With every act that brings attention our way, we absorb it all to satisfy our own desire to build up ourselves, giving the world the wrong impression of the Father. Now, I don't know how I could say it more simply than that. For Jesus, though, words and deeds are a witness to the heart of the Father. Jesus has both an effect and he has noticed, but he seeks no attention for himself. He's no salesman, not a carnival barker, not a superstar. Consider his clash with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, just a few chapters from where we are now. And just to set the stage, I'll tell it to you like this. He attends synagogue, and there's quite a crowd, and in the back he notices this guy. He's either got his sleeve pulled up like this, or he's got it tucked away. Tradition tells us he was a bricklayer that had been injured in a in a, some kind of construction accident, he's now unable to work. And so Jesus sees him in the back and goes, hey, man, you know, you, know, you wouldn't point. You, did anybody come from a culture where you point with your lip? Hey, you know what I'm talking about? It's, hey, you. And, and everybody goes, that lip's not for me. Oh, it's for this guy. And he's standing in the back. And he says, stretch out your hand. And he brings it out. It's crippled. And when he stretches it out, it's made perfectly whole. This creates pandemonium in the room. People are praising the Lord. People are shouting. People are not sure what's happened. This guy has to be over the moon about the whole thing. But the Pharisees in the room, they are angry because Jesus has healed on Shabbat. He has broken the law. And they want to figure out what can they do against him. And you know what Jesus does? Slips out the back and he's gone. He just doesn't go outside and say, I'll gather a crowd. He heads out of town. He's gone. We pick up the story now in verse 15. When Jesus became aware of this, he departed. Many crowds followed him and he cured all of them and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now notice with me the emphatic, he will. Only to qualify it in negative terms, the quiet, pervasive, and sensitive way in which Jesus will go about 
his task. But most people miss this altogether. All because a theologian in 1630 named Richard Sibbs published a tract called The Broken Reed in the Smoking Flax. And in it, Sibbs argues quite convincingly, he builds a strong case for it. We are the broken reed and we are the smoking flax. And when Sibbs does this, he shifts the attention away from Messiah, which away from the servant that Isaiah is prophesying about. And he refocuses the attention on you and me. Isn't that so common? We will take a moment in which God is being glorified and we redirect it to ourselves. He shifts the attention away from Messiah and refocuses it on you and me. And that view has prevailed to this day. Hardly a commentator can even uh, deal with this passage without having to bring it up. If you've read any blog or heard any sermons, they always bring it up. We are the broken reeds. Jesus is so gentle among us. He won't even put out our smoldering little ember that's left in our lives. Isn't that special? How convenient to make it all about us. Now, while I totally agree that Jesus is gentle with those of us who are broken and smoldering, these verses are not about that. Plenty of other verses to pick from that tells us about what Jesus is like with us. But this passage is not that. Both Isaiah and Matthew are saying something about how Messiah behaves. His MO, his modus operandi. He is unassuming, he is meek, and he resists attention. This is how Jesus operates. We see this in the gospel narratives when Jesus resists public attention. He's at a wedding and his mom says, hey, they've run out of wine. Why don't you go, why don't you go do something about that? It's like, a, it's like when you're a kid and your parents have friends over and they say, hey, come out here and play that song you learned on the piano. Go get your guitar and play that riff you were playing. Uh, no, no, Dad, I, I wasn't playing anything. I was just messing. Oh, no, you, what, what was it called? Uh, eruption or something like that. You were, you were just going, play that for my friends. No. But, of course, Jesus, like any good son or daughter, does what his mother asked him. He does it, but he doesn't want the attention from it. And Jesus comes upon a town, and he's preaching, and they, a bunch of people bring a man who's deaf. Now look up here and imagine, watch this action. He finds a man who's deaf and can't speak. Now this is going to mean something to you in a moment. And they come up to him and they say, hey Jesus, heal this, this deaf guy right here. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Heal this deaf guy. They're wanting a magic trick. They're wanting little hocus pocus and little shazam, right? Something to happen there. And Jesus doesn't do anything. He takes him, they just walk along, may have grabbed him by the arm, put his arm around him, they're just walking along. Pretty soon the crowds, they get what they want, they dissipate. And the text literally tells us when they were away from the crowd. He brings him over in front of him. Now watch at me again. He touches his ear and he touches his tongue. He's, he's signing with this man. He's telling this man, I'm about to do something about your ear and about your tongue. And he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he says, Ephrathah. Be open. One word, and this man both hears and is able to speak. But he does it away from the crowd. It's not a show. Yeah, come on, heal him right here. Well, let's watch. Everybody watch what's going to happen here. When the crowd's gone, he does. He resists public attention, and he dissuades numerous individuals from publicizing his identity and miracles. Over and over, he says, now, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. He even shushes the devil. Somebody just said, what, did he sneeze? No, he sh shushes the devil. I can just imagine it. 
this demon-possessed man comes flailing his arms ah! and scares the bejeebers out of the disciples. You know what bejeebers are, right? It's all the stuff you don't want evacuated from your body without planning. I know who you are, Jesus. You're the son of God. And Jesus, shh. Don't tell anybody. Have any of you ever been shushed by a librarian? (laughs) I got shushed by a librarian. It was a little while ago, but not too long ago, just maybe a year or so ago. And I'm not going to mention any names, but her initials are Judy Pruitt. (laughs) There I was talking to some student. She comes out, shh. It made me mad. So you know what I did? I shut up. (laughs) Yeah, I did. And that's what that demon-possessed man did too. He shut up. Because Jesus doesn't want notoriety. On the few occasions in which he encouraged publicity, he wanted God to get all the glory in heaven. Go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Not go tell what I have done for you. Go and tell what the great things the Lord has done. He wants us to be seen for God's glory only, and that's how Jesus was. Beyond that, he has no interest in being seen at all. Now, that's the what. What about so what? What am I supposed to do with this, Dr. Pruitt? Jesus wants our deeds to be seen in such a way so that the Heavenly Father is glorified. And when people see you, they, when they see me, they see hypocrisy. We can't help doing it in our natural sense. But when they see the Father, they gain a new view of what the Lord our God is truly like. Ultimately, Jesus came to correct a wrong impression, a wrong view of God the Father. I want our worship team to come back. Ultimately, Jesus came to correct a wrong view of God. Most people have the wrong view of the Heavenly Father. Oh, sure, some people see him as a loving father, but others see him as a tyrant king. And even more see him as an evil, cruel judge who wants to get them. That's how people see God. They have the absolute wrong impression of him. The remainder of Matthew 5 goes into considerable detail to convey that their view of righteousness, of what it takes to please God, specifically what God is like, was at best short-sighted and at worst a total perversion of who he is. As Jesus considers in the remainder of chapter 5, he goes through a whole litany of things. In each instance, he tells them, you think it's one way, but I'm telling you, it's more than that. He starts with murder. Go ahead and start at the top, Jesus, right? And then he moves to adultery, divorce, oath-taking and keeping, retaliation, and he ends, of all things, with love your enemies. It's like a brilliant gymnast who does a backflip into a triple twist and sticks the landing. Jesus says, love your enemies. (laughs) It's like the crowning moment in his sermon. Don't just love your friends, rather love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. Do good for those who wrong you. Why? For when you do, you behave just like the Heavenly Father. No, God wants to punish sin. No, he doesn't. He wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone who's willing to. No, he wants everyone. He loves his enemies. 
Could it have been any more clear when he says, he lets the rain come on the just and the unjust? That's what he's really like. And that, my friends, is what Jesus wants the world to see. He wants his people to have an effect and to shine brightly in such a way that when they see you and me, they will be able to say, that's what the Heavenly Father is like. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Let's all stand, close our eyes. If you're willing, lift up your hands to the Lord and say, Jesus, help me to be salt. Say it. Jesus, help me to be salt. I don't want to be salty, Lord. I want to be salt. I want to be the salt that preserves, that flavors the world and prevents decay. With your hands lifted up, say, let my light shine. Just confess it to the Lord. Let my light shine shine in such a way so that when people see my good works, they will give the glory to the heavenly father. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need transformation. We need change. There's hardly room in our heart for what the father is really like. So Lord, help us to clear out our heart. Help us to set aside all of the things that tangle us up and tie us up. I hope you're still praying it. I hope you're still confessing it because I think I've put my finger right on the nerve of what the problem is, is that we misrepresent what he's really like. But there's a remedy according to Jesus. Lord, let me be salt and let me be light in such a way that people will give you all the glory. So Lord, I pray right now in these next few moments as the worship team leads us, help us to make more room in our heart for who and what the Father is really like. Skylar, lead us. God, we lift up our hands and we yield ourselves to you.